This week's episode is brought to you by DreamCloud Mattresses. DreamCloud is an affordable, luxury hybrid mattress that combines the best of latex, memory foam, tufting, and coil technology to provide the best sleep that money can buy, and an exciting combination of comfort and support. And what's particularly great about it is that with a 365-day free trial, that's right, a full year to try it out, you can take your time deciding whether you like it or not. For listeners of the show, DreamCloud is offering 200 bucks off your first order. Head on over to isaacmeyer.net slash dreamcloud, that's one word, dreamcloud, and click the link for the discount. And then once your new bed arrives, have a lie down, enjoy the comfort, and crank up the podcasts. History of Japan podcast, episode 242, Castaway. This week we're going to explore a story that I've always loved and that is particularly timely right now. It's got everything, sweeping drama, high seas adventure, but it starts innocently enough. It starts, you see, in a small village, Nakanohama, in Tosa province, what's now Kochi Prefecture, in the year 1841. Now renamed the city of Tosashimizu, it's about as far as you can get in the province from the central city of Kochi without crossing the border into the neighboring areas. The story begins specifically with a person, a boy, all of 14, named Manjiro, who, like every other male in his family, worked the family trade. They were fishermen. And oh, what an interesting time it was to be at sea. The Tokugawa shoguns, who still ruled Japan at this time, had prohibited any Japanese from building a deep-sea ocean craft that could travel too far from the coastline. Though, of course, smaller fishing vessels were just fine, fish being such an important part of the Japanese diet. Yet by the 1840s, the oceans were becoming much more threatening. Western ships had trespassed into Japanese waters on several occasions in recent decades, and the Bakufu had responded by reviving investments in a long, decrepit program of coastal defense. But none of this was really of concern to Manjiro and his family members. They just had to catch enough fish to eat and to sell a few to make their living. So one day, specifically January 5th, 1841, Manjiro cast off in the family fishing boat to do just that, alongside his four brothers, Goemon, Toraemon, Jusuke, and Denzo. They sailed out into the waters of the Pacific to catch the fish that was the family's livelihood. However, even in the best of conditions, the Pacific is not a friendly ocean to sail, and on this occasion the brothers found themselves caught up in far less than the best of conditions. A squall kicked up and swept the boat out to sea far away from Nakanohama. Eventually the boat ran aground, stopping it from being swept away altogether on the tiny island of Torishima. This was both good and bad. That they'd hit Torishima was a stroke of luck. If they'd blown past it, there wasn't really much in terms of land from that point until you reached Hawaii, and even then, you were looking for a very small needle in a very large haystack, even assuming you knew where to look. So it could have been far worse had the boat gone further afield of Japan itself. On the other hand, Torishima was and is uninhabited. 
a barren outcrop of rock nearly 400 miles south of Tokyo, the government of the Shogun had no interest in it. Japanese fishermen were aware of the island, it appeared on Japanese navigation charts, but they saw no reason to ever go there, which made rescue unlikely at best. As an aside, a fun story I found out while researching this episode, after the Meiji Restoration, Torishima actually would be inhabited for a short time. The government sponsored a very small colony of 150 people to settle the island, mostly A, so no one else could claim it, and B, to exploit the one natural resource, the guano of the local short-tailed albatross, which could be used as an excellent fertilizer. In other words, Manjiro and company were stranded now on an island where the only valuable resource was a literal load of crap. By the way, that small settlement didn't work out so great because Torishima is also an active volcano, and unlike the short-tailed albatross, the settlers did not have wings. The whole settlement was annihilated in a volcanic eruption in 1902, and the island was never repopulated. So I guess actually that's not that fun of a story. But anyway, let's get back to Manjiro. He was about 30 years too early for this colony, and he and his brothers had little to look forward to in terms of rescue. Or at least, that would have been the case except for a bizarre detour of industrial history. You see, by the 1840s, the Industrial Revolution was in full swing in the West. Among its more bizarre demands was low-viscosity oils used for industrial lubricant, as well as lamp oil, which could be used to meet the ever-increasing demand to light up homes and businesses. And so, by the 1840s, whaling was booming and would continue to boom for several more decades until techniques to cheaply fabricate vegetable oils that could do many of the same things whale oils could, as well as the advent of electricity, made whaling obsolete. American whalers from New England, specifically Nantucket and New Bedford in the great state of Connecticut and Fairhaven in Massachusetts, were among the world's farthest ranging. By this point, those whaling ships were reaching as far as the Asian coast of the Pacific in their quest for whale pods that had already been massively over-harvested near the point of extinction. Indeed, two days before Manjiro and his brothers set out on their little boat for their fateful voyage, a small whaling ship called the Akushnet left Fairhaven, Massachusetts with a 21-year-old nobody of a sailor named Herman Melville aboard, though of course, Melville will eventually discover a calling beyond sailing. Those whaling ships were in fact one of the main reasons for increasing pressure within the United States to force some sort of accommodation with Japan. Whalers were increasingly concerned about the fate of shipwrecked sailors who ended up in Japanese hands, and wanted the right to reprovision their ships in Japan for the long voyage back across the Pacific in the other direction. In the meantime, the Americans would occasionally come by outlying islands like Torishima to see if they could scrounge anything of use, which is why several months after the brothers were shipwrecked, an American whaler, the USS John Howland, appeared on the horizon. The captain, William H. Whitfield, was on his second command, having retired for a time from sailing after the death of his first wife while he was at sea. Now back in the saddle, or I guess on the rudder, He'd taken his ship to the Japanese islands in search of fresh whale pods to exploit. Whitfield, of course, spoke no Japanese, nor did any of his sailors know any Asian language, and Manjiro, of course, spoke no English. However, they did not need to be able to communicate directly to figure out the basics of the situation. 
Manjiro and his brothers were shipwrecked and needed help to get off the island, and Whitfield, sailor that he was, would never abandon another sailor in need. And that was how Manjiro and his brothers ended up aboard the John Howland, headed not back towards Japan, but away for parts unknown. Specifically, Whitfield took them to what he knew as the Sandwich Islands, named by the British explorer James Cook for the Earl of Sandwich, then Lord of the British Admiralty. We today call them the Hawaiian Islands, in recognition of the fact that they already had a name well before James Cook got there. Unified only a half-century before Manjiro's arrival by the great king Kamehameha I, the islands were now ruled by his grandson, Kamehameha III. Under the rulership of the House of Kamehameha, the Hawaiian Islands had become a major hub for shipment around the Pacific, and thus they were a natural port of call for whale ships headed in either direction across the ocean. They were also a natural place for Whitfield to take his new charges to figure out just who the hell they were. He suspected likely they were Japanese, but without a shared language had no way to prove it. In Oahu, Whitfield was able to speak with people more knowledgeable about the region than him, who confirmed what he had suspected. His castaways were Japanese. Yet that left an uncomfortable question. What was to be done with them? Only four years earlier, an American merchant named Charles W. King had tried to return another group of shipwrecked Japanese to Japan, hoping that in the process he might be able to get access to the country and negotiate a trade deal. For his trouble, his ship was fired on. So clearly, these lost men were not going home anytime soon. Whitfield decided in the end that the best thing to do was to just leave them on Oahu. Or at least, that was what he planned. Manjiro had other ideas. He'd already started to pick up some English and expressed a lot of curiosity about sailing in western vessels. He wanted to keep learning. Manjiro did not want to stay in Oahu. Manjiro convinced Whitfield to give him a berth on the ship, and so it was that when the John Howland sailed away from Hawaii, headed back to Massachusetts, it had one more crewman than it started with. It's a measure of just how long these voyages were that it took until May 1843 for the John Howland to come within sight of Fairhaven, Massachusetts. In that month, Manjiro of the village of Nakanohama, now also using the English name, John, became the first Japanese national to visit territory governed by the United States of America, though not the first to visit the North American continent. That moment is still commemorated to this day. In 1978, Congress declared May Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, and Manjiro's arrival in May of 1843 was part of the reason the month of May was chosen. It's also why I initially slated this episode for May, but the Shimazu thing ended up taking three episodes instead of two, and the whole schedule got messed up, but that was part of the plan. Anyway, there were more immediate issues at hand than the historical significance of Manjiro's arrival in Massachusetts, like what the hell they were going to do with him now that he was there. In the short term, Manjiro needed schooling if he was to seriously pursue a career in the West, so Whitfield arranged for him to attend a local school for a year. There, Manjiro would learn English, the basics of seamanship, and pick up a trade, as a cooper, a barrel maker. By 1844, he was judged ready to take on the life of a sailor, and so Whitfield stepped in one last time, to arrange for Manjiro to have a berth on a whaling ship, the Franklin, captained by Whitfield's friend and colleague Ira Davis. 
Mangier would prove an adept sailor. In the span of five years, he would go from a total amateur to one of the boat's master harpooners, elected to the post by his fellow sailors in the highly democratic manner peculiar to American ships. In the course of his voyage, he also returned briefly to Oahu in 1847, seeing his brothers again. All remained on Oahu with no prospects for a return home. I've been unable to figure out what any of them did to sustain themselves on the island, I'd guess some kind of menial labor. Eventually, the Franklin would return to Massachusetts, minus Captain Davis, who actually had a mental breakdown and had to be left in the Philippines, in 1849, and Mondrio would be rewarded with the princely sum of $350 for his hard work. And I don't mean that sarcastically. In 1849 currency, that ain't bad at all. Apparently something of a renaissance man by inclination, Manjiro then decided to try something new altogether, for it was 1849 and there was news on the horizon. The previous year, a prospector named James W. Marshall had found gold in Sutter's Mill, California, and now the news had made its way east, and a veritable rush of 49ers, near 300,000 in total, made their way to California, hoping to strike it rich on gold. Their impact on the state would be tremendous. Among other things, they'd vault California from sparsely populated by whites to reaching the status for statehood within about a year. Of course, in the process, the 49ers also devastated the local native population, pushing them off any territory they suspected might have some gold, but that's another story. So Manjaro decided to become a 49er. In 1850, he arrived in San Francisco, at the time still more Deadwood than Silicon Valley, and then made his way up the Sacramento River to the mountains. In six months of hard labor, he managed to amass a small fortune of about $600, certainly a pretty solid return on his time. Mondrio was now by any measure an established man. His English was fluent at this point, he had a decent sum of money to his name, and he had professional skills to support himself to live comfortably, if not necessarily happily, in this strange new world that had been thrust on him by fate. And yet, as so many people who go abroad do, he missed his home. It was during his time in California that Manjiro's thoughts began to return home. He couched the idea of going back to Japan with two rationales. First, Manjiro's travels around the world had convinced him of an inevitable truth. Japan had to open itself up. Western technology was so clearly beyond what the Japanese had available and the wealth and power of Western states so overwhelming that Japan would have little choice. And the sooner national isolation ended and Japan started catching up, the better. Manjiro wanted to be part of making that happen, or at least that was his excuse after the fact. That whole routine might sound a little familiar as the party line of Meiji Restoration Japan, it's very possible that after the fact, Manjiro projected this very patriotic desire onto his past. I think his second rationale was more than likely the more important of the two. After a decade, the man simply missed his family, especially his mother. So Manjiro returned to Hawaii to see if any of his brothers would join him. Two would. Jusuke had since died of a heart attack, and Todayamon was convinced they would all be killed for violating the Shogun's laws, prohibiting travel abroad. Together, they bought a small boat and rented a berth on a larger whaling vessel and asked the captain of that ship to drop them within sight of Okinawa. 
There they were taken into custody by officials of the Okinawan Kingdom and then sent up to Satsuma, and from there, back to their home domain of Tosa. The lord of Tosa, Yamauchi Toyoshige, met with them and ordered them questioned but not harmed. They were treated well and provided an account of their time in the West, after which they were allowed to live their lives as normal. Manjiro, because he had the deepest knowledge of Western culture, and a few other gifts, including his own translation of a naval textbook produced by the United States Navy, was even given a government stipend and made a minor official. I found nothing to confirm this, but I imagine it's likely he finally got to see his mother, too. I hope so, because one of the things he'd brought back from the West was a daguerreotyping machine, a type of early one-shot camera that he planned to use to take a photo of her. Yamauchi Toyoshige was no slouch, and the Lord of Tosa was clearly aware that with the threat of Westerners arriving in Japan growing by the day, Manjiro's knowledge could be very handy. Nor was he the only one aware of Manjiro's potential usefulness. In 1853, the former fisherman received a summons to the Shogun's palace in Edo, for a group of foreigners calling themselves Americans had arrived in Edo Harbor, led by a man named Perry, and they were demanding to talk. In the wake of Perry's arrival, Manjiro was summoned to provide an account of his experiences. That account now lies in the Tokyo National Museum. He was made a translator for the negotiating team sent to deal with Perry's Americans, and most incredibly of all, he was given a new status. Manjiro was not only made a samurai, but promoted to the rank of Hatamoto, a personal bannerman and retainer of the Shogun. His advancement required that he be given a family name, as commoners traditionally didn't have one. In honor of his home village of Nakanohama, he took the name Nakahama. Nakahama Manjiro would quickly become one of the Shogun's most valuable advisors. Beyond the simple fact that he knew more about the West than almost anyone in Japan, he also spoke the crucial language of English, when most experts on foreign affairs at the time still only spoke the language of the one Western power they traded with, the Dutch. His experience with whaling was also very useful to the government. He had a brief posting to the Tokugawa offices in Hakodate, where he helped to begin the industrialization of the local whaling industry, not one of his better legacies. Manjiro was a part of the 1860 expedition dispatched to the United States, the same one that a young samurai named Fukuzawa Yukichi would be a part of. In fact, Manjiro even ended up directing the ship, the Kanrin Maru, a steamship purchased by the Dutch, after its captain, Katsukaishu, took ill during the voyage. He was one of very few Japanese with actual knowledge of deep-sea sailing. During his trip to the States, he was unfortunately unable to visit his old benefactor, Captain Whitfield, as they never made it further up the East Coast than New York. However, he did arrange for a letter to be posted, which began, quote, My honored friend, I am very happy to say that I had the opportunity to say to you a few lines. I am still living and hope you were the same blessing. I wish to meet you in this world once more. How happy we would be. Captain, you must not send your boys to the whaling business. You must send them to Japan. I will take care of him or them if you will. Let me know before send, and I will make the arrangement for it. Unquote. Manjiro remained one of the most valuable retainers the Shogun had during the 1860s, but increasingly, 
the Tokugawa government's attention was taken up by domestic conflicts rather than the question of how to deal with the Americans and foreigners. However, like most of the shogun's servants with knowledge of foreign affairs, once it became clear to Manjiro that the rising tide of imperial restorationists led by Satsuma and Choshu and joined by his home domain of Tosa had no intention of trying to cut Japan off from the West again, and in fact wanted to bring Japan even closer to the West, he was happy to offer his services to the new government. In 1870, he was deputized to go to Prussia. The Prussian kingdom and Japan's army benefactor of France had just gone to war, and while plenty of Japanese cadets were on hand at the French military academy at Saint-Cyr to observe things from the French side, the Japanese presence in Germany was still pretty limited. So Manjiro was deputized to serve as the Japanese military attaché to Prussia, writing reports on his observations from the Franco-Prussian War, which, by the way, Prussia did in the end win very handily. More than anything, the assignment was a testament to his intellectual versatility. After all, Manjiro was not a military man by training or really inclination, though he had been given a rank in the Imperial Japanese Navy, as one of very few Japanese who, you knew, had experience with boats. Not that naval training was very helpful for analyzing a war that was mostly fought on land. However, he did have a talent for picking up things very quickly. On his return home from Prussia, which had just declared itself reborn as a country called Germany, he swung by New England, to Fairhaven, where, one last time, he met with William Whitfield by this time retired from whaling and about to enter a career in politics, one that would culminate in his rise to Massachusetts state legislature. The two men who fate brought together had one last meeting. By this point, as you might have gathered from that letter, Manjiro was less of a cast-off charity case to Whitfield and more like an adoptive son. It would, however, be the last time the two would meet. After returning to Japan, Manjiro would retire from government service, and take a quiet sinecure as a professor of English at Tokyo Imperial University. He would remain in the job until his death in 1898. The story of Nakahama Manjiro, the fisherman termed samurai who bridged two worlds, has meant very different things to very different people. I've already mentioned how his arrival in the U.S. was considered to be enough of a landmark that it's part of the reason why Congress chose to situate Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month in May. The other reason, if you're curious, is the anniversary of the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad, which was finished in May 1869, and which was built with a great deal of Chinese labor. More immediately, in the years after Manjiro's death, the story really became a metaphor for the whole U.S.-Japan relationship. A young nation adrift in the modern world, the plucky Americans personified by Whitfield who came to the rescue, that story, that microcosm of the U.S.-Japanese relationship, was the narrative commemorated 20 years after Manjiro's death, when his family gifted one of their prized possessions, a 14th century samurai sword that Manjiro had acquired after his elevation to that class, to the city of Fairfield, Massachusetts, in gratitude for all the city had done for their family. The occasion was marked with an appearance by the Japanese ambassador, who laid a wreath on the grave of Whitfield, who had died in 1888, and by the lieutenant governor of Massachusetts, a relative political unknown named Calvin Coolidge. Coolidge's prepared remarks on the occasion summed up the zeitgeist of the whole affair well. Quote, 
When John Manjiro returned to Japan, it was as if America had sent its first ambassador. This sword, referring to the gift, was once an emblem of place and caste and arbitrary rank. It has taken on a new significance because Captain Whitfield was true to the call of humanity and because a Japanese boy was true to his call of duty." Unquote. Lots of nice sentiment, in other words, but no acknowledgement of the fact that if any of that were true, Manjura would not have been followed to Japan by lots of Americans with very large guns. At the time, the whole cast of the story was very paternalistic, the young and inexperienced Japanese learning from the wizened Americans, just as young Manjiro had learned from his association with Whitfield. Today, that paternalistic metaphor is less emphasized. Instead, the Manjiro story has become a metaphor for the possibilities inherent in cooperation between Japan and the United States, the chance to learn from one another and build a deep and meaningful friendship. Or at least, that's the narrative presented by the museum that now sits on the site of Whitfield's former home, paid for by donations from Japanese philanthropists, and the opening of which was attended by modern descendants of the Nakahama and Whitfield families. It's a very touching read on the story, but for my money, what really fascinates me about the story of Manjiro is the role of chance in his life. Here is a man who, but for a badly timed storm, would have lived a very different life. It's a good reminder, I guess, of how little of our own fate we truly control, that we are ultimately participants in shaping our destinies, not the master of it. Still, it makes sense to latch onto this particular story. So much of the modern U.S.-Japan relationship is wrapped up in these tense narratives. Gunpoint diplomacy during the Meiji period, the economic and political tension leading to World War II, friction over trade and business in the post-war years. It's easy to see how this story, with its very positive read, is an easy one to latch onto when you're trying to put a nice cast on that relationship instead of looking at all the difficult points. Perhaps it's overly simplistic. Certainly it's oversimplistic. But, in the end, you can see why it feels nice. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. For more on this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage www.isaacmeyer.net That's I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R.net Or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week when we tackle the history of sumo.